Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. I've got Martin with me today. G'day, Martin. That's nice to be on the same timeline, to be honest, Brett. Hello, yes, we're hello. only probably yards apart, actually, for a change. So we're a few hotel rooms apart. Um, yes, great to see you. And today we've got some wonderful guests with us. We have uh, Dr. Patrick Harris, who's an infectious diseases physician and microbiologist at the University of Queensland Centre for Clinical Research. G'day, Patrick. Hello there. We've got uh, Blinda Henderson, clinical nurse consultant at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. G'day, Ben. Hey, guys. How are you going? Wonderful. Thank you. And uh, we also have uh, Trish Hurst, who's a clinical nurse consultant at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Uh, g'day, Trish. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Wonderful to have you all here. And we're going to be talking about a paper that's currently um, in preprint and um, not and still going through sort of peer review at the moment. It's called Clinical Implementation of Routine Whole Genome Sequencing for Infection Control of Multi-Drug-Resistant Pathogens. Um, and yeah, Martin, I'm really interested in this paper. I mean, what, perhaps Patrick, do you want to start us off with, you know, where where did this where did it all come from? Where did your work? You've been doing this for a little while, and 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 working with Ben and Trish and others um, around the whole genome sequencing and trying to integrate this into infection control. Where where, where did it start? Yeah, sure, Brett. Um, so look, it, I think it really goes back to. I mean, I actually came to Brisbane in 2014, thereabouts. Um, my day job actually is at Pathology Queensland as a microbiologist. And we serve all the public hospitals in Queensland across the network. But the Metropolitan Lab in Brisbane serves the PA Hospital, Prince Alexandra, the Royal Brisbane Hospital and other hospitals around the metro area. So all the kind of microbiology, all the nasty bugs come to us. And then we often get involved in outbreak response. And, you know, if we find nasty things, we have to talk to Trish and Belinda about what on earth we're going to do about it. Um, and I think it... It really sort of kicked off probably in about 2015. I might be wrong, correct me, um, Trish. But um, we actually had a series of burns patients. in our. So we have a big burns unit in our intensive care. And a lot of patients referred from around the state with complex burns problems. There was actually an explosion up in North Queensland where a lot of people got burnt and uh, were transferred down to Brisbane. And several of those patients actually became colonised or infected with a carbapenemase-producing intrabacter, so an imp 4 producer, that we've seen, as you know, it's sort of fairly endemic across the East Coast. It's been around for quite a while. Um, but the fact that we had two or three of these cases popping up around the same time was a bit suspicious, and we hadn't seen it for a while in the unit. And there was all kinds of theories about it. I think some of the patients had been sort of doused in pond water and things like that mm. <laughs> because they mm. couldn't get a water source at, at, at the, um, during the fire and that sort of thing. So there were ideas, you know, could it have been environmental contamination that was sort of brought with the patients? But what was fascinating is we managed to, well, we sort of, at that, that point, we had no ability to do whole genome sequencing in the clinical lab at all. Um, but we, I was actually at the time, I was involved in the Merino trial, which was my PhD, and we were doing sequencing of our Merino trial isolates. And I was working with the University of Queensland bioinformaticians to sort of work out the best way to do that. And we had all these CPEs popping up, and I just thought, well, could, could they help us? And, um, you know, as you know, research and science and universities are often way ahead of what's happening in the clinical <laughs> lab. Um, 
and they were fantastic and they really came to the rescue and sequenced these things for us and what was interesting is it actually turned out to be a strain it was almost identical to something that we'd sequenced about three or four years earlier just in a research context mm. so it was really useful because it immediately told us well actually this is clearly present in the unit and it's been sitting silently somewhere for at least a couple of years and has now popped up serendipitously or non-serendipitously, whichever way you look at it in these mm. new patients, some actually nothing to do with the actual Burns event itself. Um, so that really kind of opened up a whole avenue of inquiry as to what nurse going on. And that's, I guess, where Trish and her team came into it and hunting for uh, environmental sources and other reservoirs. But the tricky thing is a lot of this sequencing was done retrospectively. It's sort of done several weeks down the track. You know, we try to push the envelope as much as we can, but it's done in a research environment. Inevitably, their priorities is more about writing a nice paper and, you know, producing beautiful diagrams that take months and months to, to, to put together and do very detailed genomic analysis, which is all great and really useful down the track. But by the time you get all the answers, you know, either things have exploded out of control or it's been and gone and it's passed and you've sort of not really made a big difference. We then had another big outbreak of cob penem resistant Acinetobacter baumannii a year or two later that actually had come in from, we thought, from the Pacific at the time and, and actually proved to be likely the case. Um, and that caused immense problems. Again, poor Trish was on the front end of that. <laughs> it, really, it really spread very quickly across the burns unit, the ICU, elsewhere in the hospital. It even spread to rural hospitals and. Uh, and you know through outpatient clinics and all kinds of things and again we sort of were trying to sort of pull the university in to do sequencing for us to try and make sense of what nurse was going on uh, and again we, we were sort of getting closer to some sort of clinically useful time frame but again it was all begging your friends uh, you know looking for research <laughs> money uh, quickly getting ethics together you know it's all very sort of on the spot and not very satisfying but I think more and more we could see the real benefit of this and clearly the, you know, the, the, the hospital executives and all the people who pay the bills could see the advantage of not having to shut down the ICU and, and the Burns unit and get things under control, which was almost where we were heading at one point. And then lastly, I also do rounds occasionally at the Princess Alexandra lab. Um, and we had one day we saw a funny looking E. coli that just was a patient that had come from Vietnam or somewhere. and. Um, had an odd looking antibiogram. We'd reported it as sensitive to meropenem, but actually if you looked at the MIC, it was just below the breakpoint, So a lot higher than you would expect for a wild type E. coli. And me with my curiosity hat, so, oh, we should probably sequence it and look for <laughs> and see what else is going on. <laughs> and opened up a huge can of worms. It turned out to be an OXA181 CPE that we'd sort of missed phenotypically. Um, and our algorithms at the time would not very good for picking up these sort of low-level carbapenemases. So poor old Belinda at this point got sucked into it and she could probably tell the story of what she did from there, but it involved screening hundreds of patients and really doing a deep dive into the entirety of the hospital and the environment and found a whole heap of patients that had actually been colonized at that point. But again, using the genomics as quickly as we could to try and get on top of things and understand the transmission and spread. And I think from this, we then sort of thought, well, what we really need to be doing this is prospectively. You know, as soon as we get a multi-resistant organism that matters to infection control, we should be doing the sequencing and then we can pick up these clusters 
before they become out of control. You know, so as soon as we get two or three identical or near identical strains, we can start to kind of institute the, the interventions that we might need to and take a bit more interest. And I guess discriminate more between things that might be circulating in the hospital or things that might be coming in from the community, things that look similar but actually are completely different or things that look a bit different but actually quite similar. So it, it, that's where the genomics can really sort of help us. So. Mm. Anyway, that's my sort of introductory sort of well, story. Well, we could spend forever talking about all that. Yeah, yeah, we could. <laughs> I mean, Trish right, Belinda, and Belinda he... might want to expand yeah. on the, what Patrick happened Patrick passed the ball to you, Belinda. What, are you, <laughs> what did you do with it then? Apart from having a little bit of central chest pain, Martin, I have to be honest, I guess. <laughs> the challenge was, I suppose, our patient that did come from Vietnam, as Patrick's described, was isolated appropriately at the beginning. And then when the MRO screening came back and said the patient didn't have any MROs, they unfortunately were moved across three wards um, because of the nature of their condition. And I guess from that, as Patrick said, once Patrick's curiosity hat was popped on and we had a bit of a deep dive and had a little bit of a look. And unfortunately there was a delay in getting the, the results back. And that at that time was the, the issue, I suppose, with sequencing. It's, it's really precise, it's really prescriptive, it's fabulous but for it to be clinically relevant, we need the results quite quickly. And mm. I suppose from there, we ended up with over 70 isolates of um, OXA181 E. coli across our organisation. Mm. So it took about six weeks in total to screen and clean and screen and clean and close wards. And, and of course, we're a very caring group here at PA and we did share the love with a number of other organisations <laughs> across East Corner because we had people, you know, and that's the nature of a large tertiary facility, I suppose. We do share a lot of patients. Um, and, you know, we did have a couple of clinical isolates as well, including a, a bacteremia um, urosepsis in a patient who subsequently passed away. The patient was did have end-stage um, liver disease, but still it was all a really unpleasant situation. And I suppose really the bigger picture is, as Patrick's described, is it shows the value of genomics for prospective observational review of all of your MROs. And I guess VRE is another really mm -hmm. good example would normally suggest that if you've got two bugs that are the same and they're in the one ward, then they must be related. But in fact, when we sequence them and we get our data back really quickly, which is was what occurred with part of our project, was that, um, you know, we in fact at PA have three or four different circulating strains of VRE around our organisation, whereas normally we'd say they must all be related. You throw all your interventions in, you do all your toolkit stuff and you're targeting. Um, when in fact you might not need to do that in every instance. So I suppose it, it was really, really um, traumatic as an ICP because it was a big outbreak. It was a very long outbreak and we seemed to not quite get to the end of the tunnel. But the value of the genomics in that space was just so critical. It gives you the opportunity to streamline your surveillance, streamline your interventions, really target and gives you a really clear indication, I suppose, of what is a true transmission event and what is a presumed transmission event. And I suppose mm -hmm. that's very helpful when you're talking to the exec about money for cleaning and those types of things to try to reduce the burden of the MROs within the organisation and certainly reduce transmission events, which of course improves patient outcomes. So I think it's kind of one of those things, but the genomic stuff is really, really exciting. And I know Trish can probably talk a little bit about how they've utilised genomics to change some of their interventions at the Royal Brisbane um, hospital so I might flick to Trish yeah I mean it is a nice story though just to make a comment then that you've you got your initial result back from the lab and it's not a carbon pattern resistant organism according to the lab until you go really looking hard and the patient then gets moved which is what happens in hospitals people do get moved between departments if they've got multiple needs 
and it shows you just how much transmission you can get when people don't think there's a problem when you do find out there is a problem and I, I was interested in the you, you you find a case from a clinical specimen when you do the screening how many do you pick up from the screening you know to actually that you wouldn't have actually found if you hadn't had that first clinical case I think it's hard to tell in this instance because once Patrick gave us a call and said actually it's it's not it's not a sensitive E. coli it's a resistant E. coli we kind of screened whole wards rather than just beds that had been you know like a shared bed space area because of the nature of the patient they were very unwell they had lots of hands-on contact with lots of different people um, so normally you would only find one or two at maximum but in this instance there was quite a delay between when the patient had first been admitted to hospital and when the, the laboratory notified us that in fact it was a carbapenemase resistant germ. So there was probably, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was nearly three and a half weeks, I think, at that time when the patient had had multiple bed moves. So we kind of did do that big overarching screen of whole wards and patients that we knew had had contact, patients in our rehabilitation unit, orthopedics, you know, other high-end units. Mm. And I suppose it was challenging, but normally we wouldn't find too many, which is great because that indicates mm. we've got general infection prevention and control practices in place. So, you know, our hand hygiene's not too bad, our, our cleaning's not too bad and those types of things. But unfortunately, this particular patient was obviously, you know, shedding lots and lots of bug, was really, really sick, had lots of people having lots of close contact with them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Had any of the additional PPE that we would put into play then unfortunately we've obviously had lots and lots of transmission. So it's one of those things, Martin, but, you know, we rely so heavily on the lab and I think it, it's a really, it's, although it's a terrible story and it was dreadful and traumatic, I think it's a good, a good story as well because without yeah. people like who are really quite, um, you know, inquisitive and interested in these types of things, we perhaps wouldn't have picked it up. And I think as a result, the changes that were made to the laboratory system here in Queensland around what's, what MIC we used as a marker for resistance um, was actually changed as a result of our outbreak. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's all ebbs and flows and moves mm -hmm. forward through process. So, and yeah. Trish, um, you know, your experience, going right back to the to the incident that <clears throat> Patrick described um, with, with, with the Burns patients, I'm sure people are wondering how that, um, how that panned out in the end. Um, oh. <laughs> Well, this, this um, we, we thought we had three separate outbreaks of crab um, over, I think, a two or three year period, but it ended up being probably one extended outbreak. Um, and we were eventually able to track it back to our plumbing in the burns unit, so in the burns bath itself. Uh, we dismantled the plumbing and um, literally did a deep dive down into the drains and uh, collected samples, <laughs> which were able to be sequenced and they were identical to the um, uh, to, to the patient samples. So then we instituted um, a drain maintenance program in our burn, burns unit. So that's a once a, once a month um, drain treatment using, at the moment it's, well, essentially Drano to treat the drains and we haven't had a recurrence um, since then. So fingers crossed that that has been a, a really effective strategy. So just, that, that's, that sounds fascinating. You know, it's a sort of a chicken and the egg I find with sinks because, you know, as, as Martin, I've heard Martin talk about this quite a bit, but you know, you're going to find things in sinks because that's what they're designed to do. Um, bars perhaps a little bit different, but um, and so was that? Could you identify transmission as that being the source, as opposed to, like, as the as the secondary source? Yeah. 
Well, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the patients obviously shed a lot of skin in those baths mm. and have, mm. you know, then see the plumbing and then you get um, like the effect of a, a regurge effect in the drains um, because they're quite old, these drains, and I don't think they've ever been pulled apart or had their, uh, their, <laughs> their plumbing cleaned. So um, we, I do have a beautiful picture, unfortunately not available today, just of the uh, the biofilm that does build up in these drains, particularly, mm. I mean, it burns patients are using paraffin and all sorts of stuff as well. So mm. it's a um, perfect agent to, to, to coat the in interior of those drains. You probably find the bath empties a lot quicker now as well. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to give credit to our burns team, though. They do uh, an incredible job doing, uh, you know, with environmental cleaning there. It's always squeaky clean. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you can only clean so far. Yeah. Now, we've, we've, we've had a great conversation already. We haven't even started talking about your, your, your paper yet. But um, just before we do, uh, just for the purposes of, you know, we've got listeners across the world. So, you know, the Princess Alexandra and the Royal Brisbane, both big hospitals in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Um, so, uh, Ben, what sort of size are we talking about for the PA? Uh, we're a thousand beds, Brett. So we're a large adult tertiary referral centre. So we have a large ICU. We don't have burns. Burns all go to the Royal, but we do have a large transplant service. We're also the tertiary referral centre for... Um, brain injured patients as well as our spinal injured patients for this part of the world um, and you know we have a large haematology oncology and renal patient population so mm. we're a really big place that do lots of really complex things but fortunately for me we're only adults we don't have to deal with kiddies and babies <laughs> and what about yourself Trish Yes, sorry about that. Yeah, we're about the same size as a PA, perhaps a little bit bigger here on the north side. <laughs> um, yes, we are a tertiary quaternary um, hospital as well. We have um, trauma, burns unit, as we've mentioned, um, uh, maternity, women's and newborns, haematology, oncology, renal. Yes, a really big sort of... Um, in case mix of patients. Yeah. So I think that's important for context because, you know, what we're about to talk about is implementing um, a program that tries to integrate whole genome sequencing into everyday life in, in what was essentially two big institutions. So who wants just to kick us off with, um, perhaps Patrick, we haven't heard from you for a little moment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sure. I should also mention we, we serve the Children's Hospital as well. Although yep. they have the Queensland Children's Hospital, um, what used to be called Lady Salento, um, they obviously have a lower burden of multi-resistant organisms overall, you know, very little VRE, but they get quite a lot of MRSA, particularly shipped in from around the state in sort of rural areas. Um, and they also get exotic things. In, they get a lot of kids, you know, rescued from overseas, Asia-Pacific region with really complex um, needs, and they often bring interesting organisms with them. So... Mm. Although as a smaller presence, we we do also sit, the, the children's hospital is also part of this program too, and we did do sort of ad hoc um, sequencing for anywhere across the state, particularly for CPEs. So we tried to sequence as many of the CPEs. They're all referred down to the central lab anyway for a quick PCR or phenotypic screen, if the rural labs don't have that capacity, and then anything we either confirmed a CPE or suspected a CPE, or had some other unexplained multi-resistance phenotype that we couldn't quite work out by simple methods would also get sequenced too. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the so we had this sort of, so we have this history of these big outbreaks. And I guess incidentally it's interesting to say that since we started this program we haven't had any more of these big outbreaks. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for that. I'm sure there's many other reasons for that. Uh, always claim credit. Hard, 
<laughs> I know, and this is the hardest thing with these sort of programs is proving an absence of something. You know, how do you know your program was doing anything? You know, yes, I can point to the fact that we haven't had any outbreaks, but it's not slam dunk evidence because you know we can you can have one tomorrow. But anyway, that's I guess a different question. So what what happened? I think it was about 2017. Uh, the Queensland government, in quite a visionary move, I have to say, um, they put aside $25 million for genomics uh, advancement in healthcare. And they put together this body called Queensland Genomics. It was initially called the Queensland Genomics Healthcare Alliance, but later shortened to Queensland Genomics. And there are similar programs in Melbourne and elsewhere in Australia. Um, and most of that money I could see was going towards human genomics and, you know, cancer and rare conditions and that, which is totally, you know, fine. That's obviously where genomics is extremely um, important. But given our experience with what we'd been doing up to that point in a more of a sort of research capacity, we thought, oh, we really have to put our hand up and try and get some money for microbial genomics. And, uh, you know, I guess we were trying to think about well, what's most doable. And we thought, well, really, we've sort of been doing this infection control enhanced surveillance for a little while. What we need to do is try and pull everyone together to actually bring this closer to the bedside, closer to the clinical lab, where we can sort of start doing this in a more routine way. And also thinking about how can we generate clinical reports that people will understand um, so that, you know, it's no point giving Trish some detailed bioinformatic output that only, you know, nerds will understand it's got to be something that is quick easy accessible and um will lead to some sort of action or or, or make or some sort of decision making or help decision making um so the we the, there were sort of two phases to the program so we managed to get a decent chunk of funding to obviously buy some bioinformatics support through the universities um they could help us build pipelines to kind of automate a lot of the sort of analysis uh, develop sort of rapid cluster defining tools. So, you know, can you quickly determine whether a new strain is clustering closely with other strains or not? Um, rapid antimicrobial resistance gene profiling, so we can quickly work out what, what genes we're talking about, um, confirming species identification, you know, all that kind of thing. And I think what was really powerful from the bioinformatics point of view is also pulling in the clinical metadata. So usually with these, what we were doing when when the initial outbreaks were happening was we'd get the isolates and the lab would have the isolate data and we would send that to the sequencing facility and we'd get the sequencing data back. Then we'd somebody have to fill in a, an Excel spreadsheet, you know, a, a great labor to sort of pull out all that information from the medical records by hand, lots of errors, all kind of higgledy piggledy typing, you know, very, very scrappy data, very difficult to kind of integrate quickly into sort of get the big picture. Then we'd have to work out, you know, where the patient's been and we dig out manual line listings of, of every bed movement and try and work out where the connections were. So the whole program has been trying to kind of automate that whole process so it's almost effortless. Um, so that as the genomes come off the sequencer, you can integrate that with the clinical metadata. So where the patients were, when they were admitted, what wards they were on, um, you know, nothing too sophisticated, but just getting getting them in context of space and time so that we can really start to see not only where the genomes match, but where these patients match in terms of their location and, and admission times and that sort of thing. Now, I wouldn't say we've solved all of those problems and pulling health informatics together in this way is extremely challenging. We got it working pretty well in the research environment. So this was obviously initially set up as a research program under kind of 
governance and ethics of a research entity, shall we say, transitioning it to Queensland Health IT <laughs> and all the kind of uh, the bells and whistles that go with that, I must admit, is still an ongoing work. Um, I think we, we're getting closer by the day. Um, but it's been quite a lesson in, you know, how do you transition this from something that's working really, really well on a University of Queensland server, you know, but um, eventually that has to all come within the Queensland Health firewalls and you have to transition all the kind of moving parts. And that that can be very, very difficult and takes a long time. So we're pretty close to it, but we're not quite there for sort of full autonomous clinical implementation. Um, but I think once we get there, the kind of the, the closed loop, the sort of speed, the speed or the, the delays in the speeding up of the, uh, or the, the, the way to get these reports in this clinically meaningful time frame should be reduced to something that's much, much faster and more, uh, you know, useful to the clinicians at the end of the day. And that's where we really want to be eventually. I mean, one of the things that really interested me in this was you're able to de-escalate isolation for non uh, multi-resistant MRSA and re releasing quite significant savings actually, but you know, also probably improving the quality of the lives of the people who would have been stuck in isolation because generally that's not pleasant. So uh, could one of you talk me through how that came about because I think that's fascinating because that's, that's to me a real positive output apart from detecting your outbreaks, you actually make, uh, managing yep. to make a positive change in practice and save some money. Yeah. No, absolutely. Trisha, Trisha knows more about that. Yeah, we're able to do. We're able to disprove transmission rather than trying to prove transmission using whole genome yeah. sequencing. So, I guess it was around sort of 2017 when uh, the QGHA sort of kicked off, or Queensland Genomics kicked off. Um, we were looking at how we could increase our bed stock, you know, with the emergence of you know new um, uh, gram negs, that sort of thing. Um, so we looked back over about three years of data had found that um, about 70, sorry, 40% of our admissions with MROs were uh, non-multi-MRSA and of that 40%, 78% were acquired in the community. So, and then there was a considerable amount that were into hospital transfers that were coming in. So we were, we were thinking that perhaps we weren't seeing transmission of non-multi-MRSA within the hospital. So we thought about um, what we could do in this space and we sort of hypothesised that standard precautions were probably sufficient to prevent the transmission of non-multi in the hospital setting. So we, uh, we teamed up with um, uh, Queensland Genomics as part of the um, ID, um, microbial ID project. Um, and we're able to uh, put into place a two-phase um, study. It was a quality uh, quality improvement project. It was put together very, very quickly. So, um, <laughs> and so we had about seven months um, of an initial phase where we used you know, traditional contact precautions and screened all patient contacts um, using whole genome sequencing to see if there was any, any transmission events and if they were directly uh, related. And in the second phase, which was about another six months, we were able, we removed contact precautions and just put into place standard precautions and again, screened um, any patients in the bays that uh, were non-multi-patients um, came up. Um, and in that time, I think we followed about 294 new non-multi-isolates. Um, and from that, we detected three um, possible patient transmissions, um, all with the same uh, strain type. It was an ST5. Um, but then when we did dig deeper, we found that two of those isolates were actually a married couple who were admitted together following a, a motor vehicle accident. So who knows where they got it from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, so um, Tom Elliott did, uh, has uh, produced a lovely paper um, regarding the, the economic benefits of this um, this particular move we made away from contact precautions. And I think he estimated in a one-year period we saved around $690,000. Ah. That's Australian yeah. dollars, which was um, amazing. Would that even get close um, to funding created... the whole genome sequencing? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's it's tricky. I guess cost, truly costing whole genome sequencing is always quite tricky. But throughout the whole program, we've we've had a health economic analysis team, who and they're really good because they they can add up, you know, the cost of a mop and you know uh, how many exactly how many hours a nurse costs, you know, to look after a patient and all these sort of things and what it costs to close down a ward and uh, all the and they're compared to the cost of the sequencing and the microbiology. So in fact, sequencing, yes, it's expensive, but in the broader scheme of things, it's it's not, mm. it's not. And once, especially once you have a system established and you can do higher throughput sequencing, the costs start to drop because it, you just get economies of scale. And you know, you you can employ one bioinformatician, but they can handle one genome or ten thousand genomes. You know, it's 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 you don't necessarily have to have. You know, once you have the system in place, it's quite scalable. Um, now, there's always a, a cost to sequencing, but, you know, the cost of that is coming down year by year. You know, mm. I think before long, we're going to have a $10 genome will be quite, quite, you know, achievable. Um, you know, we can now do it for, you know, somewhere between $50 to $100 a genome, just for the sort of the, depending a little bit how you do it and what platform to mm. use and that sort of thing. But once you add up PCRs and, you know, normal molecular testing and the labor of culture-based stuff that can take days and all the fiddling around and that sort of stuff that we might do, um, you know, I can very see a future where upfront sequencing may well replace an awful lot of the things we do in the lab or streamline things a lot. We're not quite there yet, but, you know, technology we know the technology sub trajectory is these things get cheaper and faster and easier and generally more accessible. So I'm sure it will come. And as soon as there's a tipping point that, you know, it's, it's equivalent to a culture based solution or, or, or cheaper than I think rather like PCR did many years ago, there'll be a point where everybody starts to adopt these things and it becomes fairly standard, I suspect. Mm. I think we've, um, in a number of our um, examples we've talked about today, we've been able to shift from low-value healthcare to high-value healthcare. Like, you know, the, the, the cost-benefit of isolating somebody with non-multi-MRSA as opposed to de-isolating them has been well and truly established. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's the way to go. I mean, <laughs> I mean, was that a difficult thing to sell to staff, Trish, as a matter of interest, the fact that you have been isolating these people for years and then suddenly you're not going to? Did they get why you were able to not do that, do you think? Uh, yes, so it was it was a hard sell to begin with. Mm. Um, yes, so it, we had to do a fair bit of um, education and communication with the wards. Um, but, you know, everyone's on board now, so it's, it's just become part of practice. I, I'm conscious of time here, and we'll have to get you guys back on again because um, yeah, this, this is something we really need to, to spend a bit more time on, I think. But um, I'm interested to, to know, sort of, Belinda and Trish, your priorities. So, you know, you could screen for anything, presumably. Um, and, and so what were your, perhaps as part of this project or even ongoing, what do you see as the key organisms or value in terms of what the risks or, that you're trying to achieve and, um, and reduce? What, what, what sort of screening criteria 
or criteria or put her at the, at the front end and say, this is what we're most interested in. Is that a key thing for you to consider? I think so. I think you need to look at the health dollar, Brett, and that becomes really important. We need to do our business smarter. We need to do it in a more cost-effective manner. And I suppose, you know, the CPEs are the organism of interest in the gram eggs. Obviously, internationally, it's not just here here in Brisbane. It's an international issue. And I think certainly our experience with our OXA 181 outbreak really identifies that importance of the international transfer and getting that screening down pat. I think... Um, if we look at the order of preference for organisms here in Queensland, it is kind of like your CPE, then it's your Enterococci, your ESBL producing Klebsiella's and others, and then your MRSA is kind of a becoming further and further down, down the um, the list of importance, I guess. And Trisha's project and what was undertaken at the Royal Brisbane, utilising genome sequencing as the key the key tool that drove that intervention and drove those decisions, has really made a big dent in the in the impact of isolation beds being available and mm. you know on the all of this remembering this happened in 17 18 19 and then 2020 i don't know what we've all been doing for the last couple of years but you know <laughs> we don't have a lot of isolation available to us so you know it is really really important to be able to I guess, triage which organisms require those isolation beds over others. And I think, you know, our data probably supports also that we don't have a lot of transmission in the southeast corner associated with Van B enterococci. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're still working on that. And as Patrick said, the key for us really is quick turnaround for genomics data so it's usable yeah. for a patient being discharged. And then, of course, utilising the, the reports. And I think one thing that we didn't kind of touch on is the schematics that come out of the bioinformatics stuff. So the pictures, which make it really easy for people that don't need to be too nerdy to just look at them and say, oh, goodness, yeah. look, there's there. And all they talk. <laughs> They're all actually related. So that sort of stuff becomes really, really important. So when you can, yeah. you can provide the same report to a clinician or to a cleaner or to a junior nurse who's never yeah. looked at genomics never had anything to do with clinical micro, to talk them through this is how transmission has actually happened and these are the types of interventions we put into place to minimise the effect on patients and patient outcomes. And these are the things that you can own and you can do to actually minimise the risk of us having further events of transmission. Mm. So it's that kind of stuff, Brett. It's really mm. back to basics within infection prevention and control and making everyone re truly appreciate that everyone has their part to play in reducing the risk of transmission events occurring. Look, that's probably a great way to finish, but I do really want to ask one last question. And, um, and that is, so after this project, what was the time frame between screen... I might start that again because I think it just popped up. So the question is that I really want to ask is that what is the time frame that you found between screening and getting a result back to infection control that you could act on and um, how quick do you reckon you can get it? So um, maybe that's, maybe Patrick, do you want to answer that one? Yeah, no, that's a really important <coughs> question. And there's a slightly depressing graph in our paper where we did look at the turnaround times and, and different elements of the turnaround times. It's a bit misleading because unfortunately we did quite a lot of retrospective sequencing. So if we had a little out, for instance, we were worried about our VREs at the PA at one point. So we went back and sequenced all our Enterococcus faecium, you know, over a year's period. So obviously the turnaround times for those sort of things blow out a little bit. And we've, we've tried to sort of filter it a little bit to try and get a sense of the actual prospective upfront sequencing. But it was a bit patchy. There were also 
there are always periods when you know covid holidays things where you get a period where the sequencing isn't happening for a few weeks and that obviously mm. blows out your turnaround time so we, we came up with a median time of about 30 days which seems terrible but that's from sample collection to report we we were actually getting quite a lot of those reports out within about 10 days um so uh, and we when we when we push the envelope we can get it done much much quicker the biggest problem is the way it's set up is because the sequencing is not done on site and the bioinformatics is done in the university and the culturing is done in the in the diagnostic lab there's all these intrinsic delays you know you have to culture something then you have to package it up and send it off to the sequencing lab and they unpackage it and culture it again for another day they'll wait for their next run and they might have public health priorities you know covid mysteria outbreaks you know whatever is happening that week inevitably these sort of things get a bit pushed to the back and they fit it in when they can so then they sequence it that might take a few days to sort of get through the whole process the data comes back to the uq bioinformaticians they'll do it when they finish writing their paper and have a million other things mm. and grants to write so each element can be reasonably quick but the whole process gets jammed up a bit because it's a bit clunky and kind of fragmented mm. So what we're trying to do now is bring everything in-house to within Pathology Queensland. So literally you can go straight from the culture bench onto the sequencer into the bioinformatic pipeline and generate a report that a microbiologist can hand back to the clinicians you know, very quickly. And in you know, when we've been pushed, when there's been emergencies, we can do that in 24 hours, you know, if we really wow. have to. Okay. Um, you know, particularly now with things like MinIron and more rapid sequencing technologies. There are certain protocols we have a mini seq which has sort of more rapid sequencing for urgent matters which can be done you know overnight pretty much um the next seq which is what we use most of the time it's more sort of a 24 48 hour process um but you know there are there are ways and i think we're, we're sort of learning how to squeeze the envelope more and more and i think again the more routine these things become you know, you can be running runs every day or twice a day and you can be turning mm. through these. It really depends on the numbers that you're sort of trying to work with and the instrumentation mm. and, and, and the bioinformatic end pipelines that you have to analyze these data quickly. But it's well, not easy. Yeah. No, that's, but that's and you might impressive. be sitting there one day saying, do you remember the days when it took a whole day to get a whole yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah. oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, we're going to, we'll, we'll wrap it up here because we're really conscious of your your time, Trish and Belinda and, and Patrick. You get, get back to work and, and uh, get on with a busy day. And I think Martin's about to run off and do a talk. Um, mm. So, um, look, thanks everybody for your time. This is a fascinating discussion. And thanks very much for your work in this area because it's really, this, this is just so critical to, to and a great example of, um, you know, infection control in hospitals, working with labs and universities uh, and a range of other disciplines here uh, that we've alluded to, to, to trying to, to try and bring this to reality in, in, in a meaningful time frame and bring it to bring it to the, to the bedside. So thanks for all your work for, for each and every one of you on the, on, uh, in, your, in your work in this area and, and your time this morning. Uh, that's fantastic and i should also acknowledge our, our bioinformatics team particularly brian ford who was the main author who's been the absolute driver of the sort of nuts and bolts of this and he's a mm. genius so uh, i can't take any credit for the clever stuff <laughs> 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 thanks so much belinda thanks uh, trish thanks patrick thanks, and guys. Thank fantastic. 
And thanks, Martin, too, for joining us. And um, um, from all of us here at Infection Control Matters for today, it's goodbye from us. Thanks very much.